trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I got to tell you, it really feels good to get back in the saddle after a few days off. I kind of needed a little time to decompress and just, you know, evaluate life, which way forward, all of that stuff. But I miss, uh, you know, getting behind the microphone and hopefully sharing information that's not just, you know, informative, but also, you know, inspires you to stand up and do your own thing and not be slave to, you know, the daily dread supplement or anything like that. It's, uh, it's my privilege, yes, I use that word, it's my privilege to, to get to speak to an audience whose composition I really don't know. You know, I mean, I, you and I, yeah, we're here on a day-to-day basis, but I never have any clue how large this audience is or isn't. So I just assume there's one person, that's you. I will give you my very best effort, and then what you do with that information is up to you. But even if it was just really just one person, maybe it's two, I don't know, maybe my mom tunes in from time to time, I'm still going to give it my very best. So I wanted to share something with you. This is kind of an interesting experience that I had last week. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, a few months ago, back in, I want to say it was back in March, I had a bit of a run-in with uh, a nurse in the local ER. Had to take my mom to the hospital and have her admitted. She was having terrible back pain. And um, anyway, the mask mandate was still in effect for doctor's offices and for uh, for the hospital, uh, part of St. Luke's uh, healthcare system in Idaho. They are the biggest employer in the state. They are the healthcare empire. And uh, for whatever reason, they still had this mask mandate. So everywhere you went, you know, you'd be handed a mask. Here you go. And I've taken my mom to the doctor off and on quite a bit over the last year or so. And, you know, they'll hand me a mask and I I don't make a fuss usually. I just take it, thank you, and put it in my pocket and never put it on. But this time when I went to the emergency room, uh, the nurse sitting at the admittance desk uh, was very insistent. Sir, you have to put on a mask. And I just kind of, you know, yeah, 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 okay. I'm, I'm busying myself and trying to put her off because... I'm trying to avoid conflict. I'm just not going to put the mask on, but I, I don't want to start an argument. And she just kept getting more and more insistent. And so eventually she's just like, sir, you have to put the mask on. And I finally just looked her in the eye and said, I will not be wearing a mask today. And I could see the bull, <laughs> you know, look on her face of, of, of shock. You know, I, I guess not not everybody is, is willing to stand up and do that. In fact, I, I don't know how many people are willing to but I, I gather it's a pretty small number. So then it, it got to, to be the, the power struggle of, well, you have to. You cannot be in this emergency room if you're not wearing a mask. And finally, I just asked, well, how do you want to proceed? Well, you have to wait outside in your car and someone will get you after your mom is admitted. And I'm like, okay, great. We've got an 88-year-old woman in terrible pain being admitted to the hospital, but okay. So It was very cold that day. I went and stood out in in kind of the entryway to the emergency room and just, you know, waited. Thankfully, one of my mom's friends was with us and and she was able to to hang with her until they got her in the room. But they were just so insistent. And and every step of the way back to my mom's hospital room, I had a little nurse or a little uh, CNA at my side just 
barking at me about, it's very important everybody wear a mask and you have to wear a mask and everybody, blah, 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 and I was just, you know, I wasn't there to make a political statement. Just, I, I want to make that clear. I was not there, you know, to boldly make a stand for all that is true and right. But I had just reached the point where my conscience said, I'm not going to play along with this. I'm not going to put the mask on and just pretend that, wink, wink, this is helping all of us. Well, as, as luck would have it, I ended up spending a few days. Uh, actually, I met that nurse at a church youth conference that I went to last week and spent some time talking with her. She, by the way, is a wonderful person. And in the course of our conversation, um, you know, when I first met her, I was kind of like, oh, she seems familiar. And then as, as we're talking, it turns out, okay, so she, she worked in the emergency room. And finally, I just came right out and said, were you working emergency, you know, back in, in March? Yeah. And I went, okay, I'm pretty sure that you're the nurse I got crosswise with on masks. And I could see the defenses kind of go up. You know, obviously, I'm not the first or last person who had a problem with, uh, with wearing the mask. But I told her, I, I said, look. If I upset you, I want to apologize because I want you to know my goal was not to go in there and make your job harder, but I also want you to understand that was a decision based on conscience rather than some political expediency. And, and her first reaction was, well, oh, I, I don't even remember. But I, you know what? She did. I, could, I know she remembered because I could see how uncomfortable it made her when I brought it up. However, this is the cool part. She mentioned to me, after, after the defenses kind of came down a little bit and, and we'd had a chance to visit over the course of a couple of days, she admitted that uh, many of the personnel at that hospital hated that mask mandate. And I don't, I'm not surprised. I mean, they're, they're, they're not robots. They're not, you know, automatons. They're not little heel clickers. But the choice was, if you want to keep your job, you know, this is the policy you're going to have to not only live up to, but you're going to have to enforce. People, she said, absolutely, people actually walked away from their job. They quit their job rather than comply with the mandate. Now, that takes guts, especially in a healthy economy like ours, you know, where nothing is, is guaranteed. But I just thought it was so interesting, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, hopefully not rubbing salt in anybody's wounds by, by bringing this up. Like I say, really, she's a really remarkable person. And, and it was really cool to, to get that chance to visit with her in a non-threatening atmosphere and to learn that, yeah, you know, we didn't like it either. But the thing that to me really stood out was I could see how uncomfortable she was at having been an enforcer. And I, my inclination is not, uh, you know, well, then, you know, we should make her feel bad and everybody who participated should suffer. I don't feel that way. I think I think she was probably a victim as much as, as most people were victims of the various policies. And so I want to be as uh, forgiving and magnanimous as I can be because I understand that not everybody really felt like they had a choice. Frankly, you know, if your job is hanging over your head, that's that's going to definitely affect how you do things. But I've got a couple of articles that I'm going to include in today's show notes that I want, I want you to encourage you to take a look at. One is about the rewriting of history right now that's, uh, that's underway by the authorities, the people who were responsible for the carnage of these COVID policies. And I'm, I'm looking at the example here of a former CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. Now she's out there warning, you know, we have to be very careful. There's a lot of danger in politicizing science. Isn't that strange? 
back when uh, Dr. Fauci was the one. I am the science. You know, he he had no problem with politicizing it. Follow the science. Let's throw the unvaccinated in camps, whatever, you know, people were saying. Why? Because science. But now it's becoming very clear. The damage that was done, the people who are responsible for that damage, oh, they do not want to face accountability. And this is sad, but it's also kind of encouraging. There's another article here from Stella Paul. This was published by the Brownstone Institute. And Stella Paul has this excellent article on the depravity of the hospital protocol that ended up killing people. And I'm talking putting people on ventilators, giving them remdesivir, uh, you know, denying them things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. That actually killed people. And she breaks down how the, the army of the grieving has now been created. And these are people who are not going to just quietly go away and pretend that nothing happened. The federal government paid big bonuses to hospitals if they treated patients with the drug remdesivir and then ventilated them and killed them. The way that COVID numbers were reported, you know, there was incentive to, to assign COVID to everything. Look, I hope it doesn't sound like too much of a conspiracy thing here, but we were taken for a ride. Reality was distorted to fit the narrative that, oh, this is a terrible, terrible disease, and the only thing we can do is make sure that everybody gets the vaccination. Well, I'm proud to say that I'm, I'm one of those people who did not, uh, I didn't do it. Now, if you did, I don't think you're a bad person. I think a lot of people were forced into an untenable situation. But I'm very encouraged to see that there are people who are fighting back, who are looking for accountability, and I hope they get it. Because the attempt to rewrite history right now is huge. Whether it's on masks, whether it's on, um, you know, the lockdowns themselves and the destruction of so many small businesses, whether it's on the vaccine mandates and people who lost their jobs. There was a lot of hinky stuff that was going on, and, and it affected a lot of people. I hate the fact that it, that it made a simple interaction, for instance, in an emergency room, suddenly a matter of confrontation. How ridiculous is that? You know, you take away the mandate, you take away that uh, insistence, we must coerce everybody to do this or else, and it turns out people can be pretty decent. A lot of great human beings out there. So yeah, I think the people who put these policies in motion absolutely need to answer for it. And by answering for it, I mean they need to pay for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, I know the uh, Independence Day holiday has come and gone, but uh, I found this wonderful commentary from Tom Cranawitter. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. And I have found that uh, Tom Cranawitter, when he has a take on something, this guy is, is really worth considering. So if you missed his thoughts on Independence Day, they're worth your time. I will include a link in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. But I'm also going to share this with you just because he gives some really solid history. 
And I know that uh, much of, of what at least mainstream media, legacy media, was portraying about the 4th of July was, you know, strained through that, that filter of, well, you know, they were they were oppressive and they took land from people and uh, a lot of armed people. This is a true story, by the way. In, uh, in Idaho, <clears throat> there was a group called Liberty Watchdogs participating in a parade. And I guess some of them, some of them were armed as they were in this parade. And, and there were people who were just like incensed about this. Oh, I can't believe it. I turned my back when they went marching by. And I'm thinking, you know, these are the same people who, if it was, uh, you know, people walking around near naked or waving sex toys in little kids' faces, would be clapping their hands with joy and saying, what a wonderful thing. But, you know, to, to recognize that, yes, it was insurrection, it was armed revolution and secession from the central government that gave us that 4th of July holiday. Hmm. For some reason, they just don't want to see that. The guys shaking their junk in the kids' faces. Oh, well, you know, that's all in good fun. Why, that's a healthy thing. What a bunch of weirdos. I mean, what a what a twisted sense of priorities. And yet, uh, you know, the outrage is there. Oh, that was the other thing. There was a, there was a parade float. I think it was a deuce and a half truck with a banner that said uh, the tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants or the blood of tyrants and patriots. It's a Thomas Jefferson quote. And this big banner, which was painted with blood red lettering and had, you know, what looked like blood splash on it. I was deemed a little too much and parade organizers said you need to take that down. You know, it gives you the impression some people really don't want to be reminded that uh, the the crux of why this nation was founded came down to people realized we have natural rights that are being violated by those in authority, and we have a moral duty to separate ourselves from those who want to rule us and instead to rule ourselves. And when those who want to rule us were violently trying to keep us under their control, we had an absolute moral right to resist with violence. Now, that's not to say that violence, yay, what a fun thing. It means real suffering, real sorrow. But sometimes that is the necessary thing in order to preserve what is really precious, in this case, liberty. Yeah. You get the impression that the people who really lust to control us right now, they don't like to be reminded especially by displays of, well, these people, they had guns. This is terribly offensive. They had guns. <laughs> they don't like to be reminded that uh, there are limits to their ability to control the people around them. As long as you have a gun, you still have a vote. Even when democracy, wink, wink, goes bad. All right, here's Tom Cranenwitter's take on this Independence Day. He says, this Independence Day, we recall how strangely beautiful the American founding was. It remains the first of its kind, often imitated, never fully replicated. The American founding announced to the world by a declaration of independence that appealed to the opinions of mankind was a unique blending of political elements, some ancient, some modern. Traditions mattered, and so did timeless abstract ideas. He says the Americans understood their own revolution in mostly modern terms. Unlike Aristotle, who taught revolution as the unending cycle of regimes, continuously transforming from one kind to another, the Americans described their revolution as an overturning of an unjust political order. 
they had the audacious goal of creating a Novus Order, Novus, o, Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order of the ages, something undreamt by classical thinkers. He says the American founding featured other modern concepts, institutions, and principles, such as the Enlightenment idea that every human being possesses universal, equal, individual, natural rights because they are inherent to human nature. There were no natural right regimes in the ancient world. Americans rejected old practices such as divine right monarchy, papism, religious persecution, theocracy in all forms. They disestablished their churches. In America, a civilian civil rights, or a citizen's civil rights, rather, would not depend upon a confession of sectarian faith, as Jefferson explained in his Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty. They helped others understand that any government lacking the consent of the governed is illegitimate. They adopted a written constitution, authorized by the people, that clearly grants, defines, and limits government power with a view that the only proper purpose of government is to protect the individual rights of citizens and nothing more. They reserve for themselves a large realm of individual privacy, in which each citizen is free to pursue happiness, use his own property, and run his own business, worship God as if, as and if he chooses, rather, raise and educate his own children, employ his labor as he sees best, and keep what he produces and earns. Trade with others who want to trade, and speak openly, all without government interference. This was modernity at its best. Now, Tom Cranowitter says the American founding also borrowed from the old and the traditional. Immediately following a modern revolution, America experienced a founding that was classical in character, complete with law-giving founders, something common in the ancient world. The Americans were not like the French, whose revolution devoured itself and required Napoleon's heavy hand to stop. According to the Declaration of Independence, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. The Americans showed the world how to do both, throw off a bad government and provide new guards for their rights. The pseudonym used by the authors of The Federalist, Publius, harkens readers back to classical Roman republicanism. And as much as any ancient Greek or Roman political treatise, the Americans emphasized the importance of virtue, especially key civic virtues that should be known and exercised by all citizens if the American experiment in self-government is to endure. When Thomas Jefferson sat to pen the Declaration of Independence, he borrowed much from Virginia's Declaration of Rights, written a month earlier by George Mason. Not only are the two documents, not only do they contain similar language, but the political conclusions in each are nearly identical. The inalienable rights that formed the major premise of the Declaration of Independence described as inherent rights in Virginia's Declaration of Rights, are emphatically negative rights. A person's natural rights or rightful claims to whatever a person rightfully owns by nature, including his own life, liberty, property, and the freedom to speak, think, be productive, and pursue happiness. Natural rights are inseparable from human nature for the simple reason that no human being anywhere has any rightful claim to the lives, liberties, or properties of other human beings. They are negative in the sense that person A shouldn't take what belongs to person B and vice versa. 
So this is where the need for classical-style virtue enters. If the American regime recognizes that no one has a rightful claim to what belongs to others, then the only way Americans will thrive as fellow citizens is by being self-reliant, self-assertive, self-governing, and responsible for their own well-being and the well-being of those they love. The entire logic of political, of constitutional government, rather, flows from the idea of negative rights. Now, here's what he means. A government of limited constitutional power is possible only if the purpose of that government is limited to protecting the natural rights of each citizen. But Tom Cranowitter says the moment we give, we expand the purpose of government to include taking from some in order to give to others, the moment we adopt positive rights or entitlements while regulating and controlling virtually every aspect of life for everyone, we replace a government of limited with a government of unlimited power. We'll continue this in the next segment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you this uh, commentary from Tom Cranawitter on this Independence Day. And yes, I know the 4th of July has come and gone. But man, he makes so many great points here. And especially, I love his explanation of the basic philosophical underpinnings of why the founders did what they did. Why they separated themselves from Britain, why they created the system of government that they did. And I love that he explains the difference between negative rights and positive rights. And I know that's a concept for a lot of people that seems kind of turned on its head. Well, positive, we want positive rights. After all, positive is good, right? Negative is bad. But in, in the sense of government, negative rights are what limit government's power over you. Positive rights are what increase your obligations to government. So a good example of positive rights would be bake the cake. You know, Mr. Jack Phillips, you bake the cake for this gay wedding because... This couple here has a right to force you to do business with them, whether you want to or not. You see the difference? So when we give government that expansion to take from some in order to give to others, Tom Cranowitter says that's when we adopt positive rights or entitlements. We replace the government of limited powers with a government of unlimited powers. And his point is this is where we are this Independence Day 2023 in the United States of America. Now, this is the bad news. Our politicians either mock or ignore the Constitution because we as a nation of citizens have forgotten the natural negative rights enshrined in our own Declaration of Independence and other founding documents. Instead, he says, we've embraced positive rights, which is nothing but a ruse for some of our fellow citizens, taking what was produced and rightfully belongs to others. We've traded our constitutional government of limited powers for a national debt of $32 trillion and growing, coupled with unfunded liabilities that are six times that amount or more. No, go ahead. Do the, do the math. Six times $32 trillion. It gets incomprehensible quickly. So Tom Cranowitter's point is our options are two. He says we can continue our current path of positive rights entitlements, and limitless government control over our lives and property until the United States implodes. Or 
He says we can embrace again the natural rights, the principles and virtues that once fueled our fight for independence. But his point is simply this. The choice is ours. And it's a fateful choice that we should not make lightly. I think I would only add to that, you can't defend something that you don't know or understand for yourself. I mean, there may be a bandwagon comes along and you think, wow, these look like good people. I'll jump on board the bandwagon and just go wherever they're going. But when you actually know something for yourself, when you have that personal sense of conviction, it's a lot different. It makes a world of difference. Now, I want to segue from Tom Cranowitter's remarks to a question that James R. Harrigan, I believe he's the editor-in-chief for the, uh, he's the senior editor at the American Institute for uh, Economic Research, and also the host of the Words and Numbers podcast. And he has an essay about the harmonizing sentiments of the day. And this, this is what he's asking is, what are the harmonizing sentiments of our time? He says, the Second Continental Congress named the Committee of Five, the group who drafted what would become the United States Declaration of Independence. Now, that committee operated from June 11, 1776, until July 5, 1776, the day on which the Declaration was published. It was composed of John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, and Roger Sherman. Now, he points out that as with most committee work, the lion's share of the task fell to one man, and that would be Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was brilliant, to be sure, and that surely had something to do with his being saddled with the authorship of the Declaration. He was also young, only 33 years old at that time, and that clearly had a lot to do with it as well. What emerged from his pen was a document that would, in short order, change the world. Now, we typically think of Jefferson inventing the Declaration from whole cloth, but James Harrigan says that's not how things went. As he began with the high-minded opening of the document, the part most people are familiar with, he borrowed liberally from Virginia's Declaration of Rights written by George Mason. Now, it wasn't a contest. Jefferson wasn't trying to be unique. He was trying to be right. And he captured the American mind perfectly when he wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. James R. Harrigan says no sooner had he offered what is likely the most philosophically polished political statement of all time than he switched gears entirely in order to offer a protracted constitutional argument, wherein he assessed the colonial perspective of the nature of the British Constitution, which was to say, uh, suffice to say, an animal of an entirely different stripe than the British understanding of their own constitution. Jefferson railed away at the English and their unwillingness to remain a nation of laws. And only after this did he allow himself to conclude the Declaration with some of the most high-minded political rhetoric of all time. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, 
appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name of and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent Great Britain, uh, that, that as free and independent states, rather, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, I love that James R. Harrigan asks next, when is the last time a politician of any description used the phrase sacred honor with a straight face? So we go from a statement of political truth to constitutional analysis to sacred political honor in one document written by a 33-year-old man on the eve of the unlikeliest of revolutions. But again, he says Jefferson wasn't trying to be unique. He was trying to be right. How do we know? He told us, or more precisely, he told Henry Lee in 1825, quote, With respect to our rights and the acts of the British government contravening those rights, there was but one opinion on this side of the water. All American Whigs thought alike on these subjects. When forced, therefore, to resort to arms for redress, an appeal to the tribunal of the world was deemed proper for our justification. This was the object of the Declaration of Independence, not to find out new principles or new arguments never thought of before, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject, terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we were compelled to take. Neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. All its authority then rests then on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversations, in letters, printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. End quote. Okay, so here's, here's the, the, the key. James R. Harrigan says the harmonizing sentiments of the day provided for the foundation for the Declaration of Independence and thus for the nation itself. Do you understand what he's saying? They were different people. They didn't all march in lockstep. They didn't see things the same way. But there were harmonizing sentiments they could agree on. Number one, we have natural rights given to us by our Creator. The King is violating those rights and therefore we have a moral obligation to secure those rights for ourselves and to create a system of government that will protect our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So James R. Harrigan says the, we are left with one important question in our own time. And that question is, what are the harmonizing sentiments of our day? That's a tough question, right? Look at the divisions around us. Look at the stupid things that we get divided over and wrapped around the axle over. I don't know if I could give you a solid answer on what the harmonizing sentiments are, but 
I think I'm pretty dedicated to trying to uh, find out what they are and to the best of my ability, encourage people to find them themselves. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, Climbing Upward and ClimbingUpwardMusic.com, TMCPNation.com, that's the Modern Conservative Podcast, and also LifesavingFood.com. All right. I guess it's because because I work in, in the realm of words and language and ideas, you know, to me, the battle for free speech is very real, and I mean this on a daily basis. I see what's happening, you know, with the algorithms on social media. It's very telling, isn't it, that uh, July 4th, a federal judge uh, basically came out and issued an injunction. Well, he did issue an injunction, or at least a temporary injunction, saying that uh, the federal government or its, uh, its agencies cannot solicit censorship on its behalf, you know, from these private party, uh, you know, uh, social media companies, which apparently is something they've been doing. I think there's 25 different defendants that are listed. Pretty sneaky stuff. Now, I realize for a lot of people, though, okay, if you don't sit behind a microphone or a keyboard on a daily basis, maybe free speech, you know, doesn't seem like that big of a battle. I'm kind of aware of it, but it's, it's I think of the scene from um, Mel Gibson's The Patriot you know, where they can hear the battle off in the distance, you know, see the occasional flash of light and hear the thunder and the rumblings of cannon and so forth. And that's what the battle over free speech seems like to a lot of people. That's just so many rumblings in the distance, that doesn't really affect me. But it does. In fact, I have a great article here from uh, J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And he talks about the realities of hate speech and how language has become the battleground for ideas. And whether you consider yourself, you know, a commentator or a pundit or just a concerned citizen, you know, writing a letter to the editor, this affects you. So it might be might be something to be at least aware of, if not engaged in, if you're not already. J.B. Shirk says, which words become common and which go out of style record the advances and retreats of competing beliefs. All right, that makes sense. People who use words as weapons understand that hijacking a country's vocabulary is the shortest path toward claiming total control over a country's thoughts. In a war of words, what is forbidden from being said out loud is more important than what is allowed. Sometimes language bans are explicit, such as Ireland's continuing crusade against so-called hate speech or Facebook's policy directives to censor as misinformation any commentary questioning the effectiveness of COVID vaccines. In other instances, certain words are stigmatized until populations learn to see them as politically incorrect, if not downright vulgar or taboo. Whether enforced through official corporate policy, criminal statute, or polite society's behavioral codes, the effect of limiting speech is identical. Free expression is reduced to a verbal minefield. Can I say that? Should I say that? Will I be punished for saying that? Just asking those questions encourages a degree of self-censorship unpalatable in any truly free society. If human innovation is a uh, product of argument and debate, then any kind of debate that limits which words may be spoken also limits mankind's capacity for discovery. 
He says, stifled thoughts lead to closed minds. Now, a June poll from the Commonwealth Foundation in Pennsylvania found nearly 60% of Americans feel their right to free speech has significantly eroded in the last decade. Over 40% said that they or someone they know has self-censored during the last year to avoid punishment or harassment. We have, we've heard from numerous individuals who are bullied into silence and fear retaliation if they speak. That's according to Jeremy Samick, senior counsel at Pennsylvania Family Institute. That's what he told the Epic Times. He said they fear retribution from their private employers, government employers, even by those in the media. In the United States, where free speech was once considered as quintessentially American as baseball and apple pie, ordinary people are afraid to speak. Now, that fact should shock the sensibilities of any American who once believed totalitarianism died in the 20th century. J.B. Shirk says law and corporate policies that censor words for their perceived hate open up a Pandora's box for future censorship. Often what is seen today as hateful speech was not seen as hateful very long ago. It's more likely then that some speech viewed as harmless today will be condemned as hateful tomorrow. And the words and their meanings don't change, but rather the subjective judgments of those who choose to police language. So, if Michigan Democrats have their way, it will soon be illegal to use any hate speech that causes someone to feel terrorized, frightened, or threatened. Okay, now, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a second. Have you seen some of the TikTok videos of people who say how, how frightened and terrorized and threatened they, they feel just by someone misgendering them? This is where this is, where this is leading. J.B. Shirk says, in an age when woke leftists require safe spaces to shield them from the possibility of ever hearing opposing points of view, any kind of speech that deviates from the left's secular religion will surely be judged as frightening or threatening. And just to be clear that Michigan is not targeting foreign terrorists, but rather Americans expressing personal beliefs, the proposed law specifically defines sexual orientation and gender identity or expression as special groups that must be protected from scary words. Rational Americans with a sound understanding of the biological sciences could face five years in prison and a $10,000 fine for accurately stating that there are only two sexes and that men and women are distinct. Now he says, even more dangerous for free expression is the ennoblement of a class of people who are empowered to evaluate the language of everyone else. What is hateful to one person may sound entirely reasonable to another. However, when experts in, the, in disinformation or hate are given the power to veto another person's spoken and written words, that expert is given a de facto power to veto another person's thoughts and beliefs. Whether a word or idea is banned entirely is entirely rather dependent upon who's empowered to appraise language. Why should any government or corporation have the power to restrict language that belongs to us all? J.B. Shirk says, Consider the slippery slope of banning words and their ideas for their perceived hatefulness. For example, is it hateful to disagree with the United Nations contention that so-called man-made climate change threatens human existence? Is it hateful to defend oil and natural gas as reliable energies for saving human lives? Is it hateful to believe all humans should be treated equally regardless of skin color during a time when the United States and other Western countries prefer to separate citizens by race? 
In Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky has decided to ban Russian books and publications. So, sorry, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and Solzhenitsyn, your literary masterpieces have once again been judged politically incorrect. Apologies to all the Russian speakers living in Ukraine who now have nothing to read. I believe this law is the right decision, Zelensky wrote. Well, surely every government authoritarian ever committed to cracking down on dissenting opinion has said something similar. For the time being, the whole of the Russian language is prohibited in Ukraine, in Ukraine because it supposedly threatens the information security of the state. So his point is simply this. Control over speech is control over thoughts. When governments are permitted to, permitted to criminalize hate, they will soon define anything that challenges their power as hateful. Any wrong think is hateful. At some point, labeling certain thoughts and ideas as hateful becomes the formidable cudgel in advancing actual hate. We're not far from telling Christians and Jews that their beliefs are illegal. Speech bans only grow over time. Many individual rights, like assembling to protest government policy or attending religious services, were deemed selfish during the global COVID outbreak. Will selfishness one day be viewed as indistinguishable from hate? Is it hateful to defend personal liberty whenever governments declare a health emergency? Will any speech that elevates personal freedom above the perceived common good eventually be banned as hate speech. Now, J.B. Shirk's point is simply this. The time is not nearly as far off as one might imagine. He says, in recent years, it's become far more common to hear politicians in the U.S. speak about saving democracy rather than preserving rights and freedoms. If understood as the rule by the majority, the protection of democracy assures citizens very little. It's respect for individual rights, not democracy, that provides the foundation for the American system of government and safeguards citizens from injustice. The Declaration of Independence asserts life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as among those unalienable human rights that any legitimate government must protect. The Bill of Rights articulates a partial list of American freedoms beyond the reach of federal government intrusion. When politicians substitute, substitute democracy in lieu of freedom, they engage in linguistic sleight of hand that deprives Americans of their birthright in liberty. And because language is the battleground for ideas, he says, any discussion of democracy at the expense of personal rights should be viewed suspiciously. That's the problem with language bans of any kind. In the minds of those who wish to police language, governments and corporations are the highest authority probably should have it straight in our minds which is which and uh, which trumps the other hint hint your rights are above government this is the brian hyde show